Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. This is on page 823 and 824 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take the one in the pew as a gift from us. Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anthony. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. Thank you all uh, for being here this morning, for coming to gather with us. And John and Ben, thank you so much for the music that you given us this morning for the joy of that. Um, if you're new here this morning, if this is one of your first times at Christ Community, just want to say thanks for being here. I know it's not an easy thing to do, to walk into a new church for the first time, um, whether you're just looking for a church home for the first time, or, or maybe you haven't been in church in a really long time. Um, either way, I know going into a new church for the first time is a hard thing to do, so thank you for doing that. Hopefully you feel welcome here and have met some people. Uh, I'd love to meet you after the service as well. And before we look into the passage here in Matthew 18 that uh, Anthony read for us, I'd love to begin by um, asking God to help us to understand his word. Um, so let's do that now. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have spoken to us, um, that you have revealed yourself, yes, in creation and, and in the world that you have made, um, but that you have left us in your word an enduring um, witness of your work in the world. Thank you that the Bibles we hold in our hands are your word to us. We pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, help us to understand and apply to our lives um, your word to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When someone has hurt you, whether physically, emotionally, when someone's betrayed you or violated your trust, when they've made fun of you or taken advantage of you in some way, even called you a name, robbed you of your reputation or your innocence, that makes a, a lasting and enduring dent or scrape the core of who you are. It's as though someone has sort of keyed the side of your heart or shattered a headlight in your soul. And I was thinking back uh, about that, that reality this week and, and thinking about those experiences in my own life. And, and my mind sort of wandered all the way back to uh, my days as, as a Cub Scout. And, uh, and there was this kid, Kevin, um, who, who always picked on me in Cub Scouts. Couldn't stand Kevin. And, and he picked on everyone. He was kind of this classic little punk bully. And I just couldn't stand him. I mean, even 25 years later, I remember exactly what this kid looked like. And, and so just for fun this week, I thought, I wonder if I can find Kevin on Facebook. And so I, uh, well, so two things happened. One, I wasted about 15 minutes on Facebook because it's hard to go on Facebook and not wait 15 minutes. Um, but I found him. I found Kevin. And, and as this picture, I knew it was him because this picture popped up. He had those same little beady eyes that kind of evoked that same one that just kind of popped my computer screen. Um, but the point is, ah, 25 years later, I mean, it was you know, eight nine, eight, nine years old, I can still remember Kevin. Now, 
I don't remember any one specific thing that Kevin did or said, but I remember him. I mean, way better than I remember anyone else I was in Cub Scouts with, really. Or, or, or take another moment, probably about the same time 25 years ago as an eight or nine-year-old friend Seth from church, and he started hanging out with a different group of kids, and he said he didn't want to be friends with me anymore. And you have these memories, right? When someone's hurt you, when someone's betrayed you or injured you, and in, in even kind of these small ways as a little kid, they stay with you. When people hurt us, it makes a lasting dent, a, a lasting wound that can remain tender for years. And in, in some cases, if the wound is, is deep enough, it can, it can fester and get infected and sort of ooze a, a pus of bitterness for decades. And over time, that, that infection, if, if left untreated, it can and will destroy us. So what's the antidote? What's the, the antibiotic, if you will, that will stop that infection? And Jesus' answer here this morning in this passage is, is forgiveness. And based on the passage that we heard read, you probably would never have guessed that that was the answer I was going to come up with, forgiveness, right? Okay, Jesus, we get it, forgiveness. Um, but we all have the question, I think, that Peter does in this passage, which is basically, do I really have to forgive? Do I really have to forgive? And, and that's an understandable question, because some of you here this morning have been hurt in unspeakable ways. And for, to forgive feels like death. And again, when you've been hurt, when you've been let down, betrayed, abandoned, abused... You know, for some of you, when you just even hear the word forgiveness, you're beginning to replay the trauma. And you're thinking, Bill, you have no idea what I've been through. You have no, you have no idea what's been done to me. Again, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, you probably know we're supposed to forgive. It's nothing new for probably most of us this morning. Do I really have to forgive? And again, the first followers of Jesus, they wrestled with that same question, the same things, the same pains, the same broken relationships. And so this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 18, but why all of a sudden are we talking about forgiveness in, in Matthew 18? How does this fit into the story that, that Matthew's telling of Jesus' life? Well, last week, we moved into a new section of Matthew. Now, Jesus is moving um, toward Jerusalem. He's moving toward the moment where he will die on the cross to his final week on earth. But before we get to that final week, Jesus teaches us in these chapters what it means to follow him, what it means to follow this king. So what does it look like to follow him? Well, this week we see it looks like forgiveness. And in our time and in our cultural context, we're desperate for forgiveness. But watch what Jesus does here at the beginning Jesus begins the conversation about forgiveness with confrontation. It's not maybe the place we'd expect him to start, but if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, this is what he says. He says, if your brother has sinned against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother, Jesus says. And what we see here in verse 15 is the first of three truths that Jesus is going to reveal to us this morning about forgiveness. 
And the one that we see revealed here is that forgiveness confronts real sin. Forgiveness confronts real sin. And in fact, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we struggle so much, the reasons we don't forgive well, and that there's so much angerness and bitterness and distress in our society, is that we no longer have a category to call sin, sin. And you see, forgiveness, it invariably begins, true forgiveness, begins by labeling evil as evil. By calling sin, sin. Forgiveness inherently means that you have been wrong, that you have truly been hurt. See, if, if you haven't been wronged, if there hasn't been a sin committed against you, then there's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness isn't for those sort of small inconveniences or just moments that happen in life. For those, we just need to be excused. And if you're late to a meeting because your car broke down and you call the person you're meeting with and, and tell them what happened, I mean, they don't say, how could you do that to me? I say, hopefully, they just say, oh, that's okay, no worries, I understand. Just get here when you can, or do you need any help? It's not a moment for forgiveness. It's, it's just, it just needs to be excused. It, we say, that's okay. But far too often, when there has been a real wrong done against us, we're too quick to say, oh, that's Okay. without really working through the process of naming the fact that we've really been hurt. You see, forgiveness does not just sweep evil under the rug. Forgiveness does not call evil good. It doesn't say it's okay when it's not okay. If someone's really hurt you, that's, that's not okay. Forgiveness doesn't minimize the pain. In fact, it does the exact opposite. It names the pain. It names that there's been something wrong that has happened here. Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian at Yale University and um, is from the Balkans and experienced firsthand so much of the war uh, in that region as he grew up, writes an outstanding book on forgiveness called Free of Charge. And Wolf points out that to forgive someone actually begins with condemnation. Interesting, isn't it? To begin to forgive someone, it begins with condemnation. It begins with naming the fact that a real wrong has been done. He writes, condemnation is not the heart of forgiveness. It is the indispensable presupposition of it. Condemnation is not the heart of forgiveness, but it's the indispensable presupposition of it. The heart of, a for, of forgiveness is a generous release of a genuine debt. The generous release of a genuine debt. When we forgive, we acknowledge the offenses and blame the perpetrator. But then we treat the person as if the offense did not happen. To forgive means most basically to give a person the gift of existing as if they had committed, had not committed the offense at all. But that's powerful from Wolf, right? 
when we forgive, we acknowledge the offense and we blame the perpetrator. We don't say, oh, that's okay. We say, no, that wasn't okay. You really did something wrong that really deeply hurt me. But then we give them the gift of existing as if they had not committed the offense at all. If there's no real wrong, there can be no real forgiveness. And without forgiveness, we're just in an incredible mess. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. It's not judgmental. It's not self-righteous. It's not even about being punitive in that moment, about making them suffer. But if you've been really wrong, it's the first step towards forgiveness, going to them and saying, you've hurt me. If you keep looking in Matthew chapter 18, beyond verse 15, Jesus actually tells us how to do this. He says, when you've been first hurt, first go to the person. You know, don't, don't gossip about it. Don't sort of stew over it and get angry and angry about it, about it. Just go to the person. But then you say, well, but if that doesn't work, then what? Am I done with the forgiveness process? <laughs> Jesus says, no. Next, if they don't listen, bring someone else along. Bring a friend. Let them feel the weight of what they've done. This is a really important part of the process as well, because if you go to someone at first, just one-on-one, and, and they don't acknowledge that they've hurt you, it could be, it could be that maybe that hurt is just in, in your mind. Maybe they haven't really done something. But when you bring other people into the process to check even on you, to say, am I just being overly sensitive here, or has someone really hurt me? Bring someone else along. And again, the goal isn't, isn't punitive, it isn't to shame this person, it's, it's restorative to try to bring about forgiveness when there's been real hurt. And if that doesn't work, then, then Jesus says, invite the, the broader church community and a bigger group of people into it. Let them feel the weight of what's happened. And if that still doesn't work, then Jesus says, treat them like, like a Gentile or a tax collector. Basically, treat them like someone outside the community. Maybe you're thinking, okay, yeah, Jesus, I can get on board with that. I'll kind of tick my three steps off, and then I can finally just treat this person uh, as a complete outsider and be done with them. But here's the thing. How does Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? We've seen a lot of them in the gospel so far. How does he treat them? Well, he doesn't give up on them. He chases after them. He loves them. Ultimately, he dies for them. So even with someone has gotten to the point where they've become so toxic in the community, Jesus is to treat them like an outsider. How does Jesus treat outsiders? He runs after them. He continues to pursue them. He longs to see them forgiven. Ultimately, he dies on the cross for them. Longs to restore them. But if that doesn't work, do I still have to forgive? Now we're beginning to sound like Peter in this moment. Peter comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how many times will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times, Jesus. And you kind of get the sense that Peter thinks that seven is an incredibly high number, that, that Jesus is going to sort of applaud and say, wow, Peter, seven times? Not, not that many. You're a really good person, but you don't have to be quite that extreme. But rather than affirm him, Jesus says, basically, try again, Peter. So look at verse 22 again in Matthew chapter 18. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
So nice try, Peter. Um, but it's a lot more than that. And some of your Bibles say 77, some say 7 times 70. It, it's because hard, ancient numbers, they're hard to, to translate. Um, so you, you just want to know, is it, is it 77 times or, or 490 times? But what, what's the number? What's the limit? But, if, but of course, right, this isn't Jesus' point. He's not giving us the upper limit. He's, he's using hyperbole to say, you continue to forgive over and over and over again, which brings us to the second truth about forgiveness that Jesus gives us here this morning, and that is that forgiveness knows no limits. And first we saw forgiveness, it confronts real sin, but also it knows no limits. But wait. If I do that, Bill, I do that, won't I just open myself up to being hurt over and over again? That can't be what Jesus is really saying here, is it? But it is. I mean, there's no way around it. There's no loophole to be found in this text. Jesus isn't saying, of course, he's not saying invite abuse. He's not saying enable another person to hurt you. Because, of course, in those moments, you establish appropriate boundaries for their good and for yours. If your spouse cheats or you have a child who is an addict, or you, you don't just look the other way. I forgive you, I forgive, over and over again without enacting some kinds of plan for change. Because that's not real forgiveness. I mean, if, if you were abused by a relative, you're, you're not going to let that person babysit your children, right? That's wise. And the reason for wise is because, you see, forgiveness always seeks the good of the other person. And making it easier for that person to sin or to continue sin is not good for them. And yet, forgiveness is always risky, and forgiveness continues to open itself up to the possibility of being hurt again. This might be the point where you're saying, okay, Bill, you're starting to lose me a little bit here. Because uh, tell, me, tell me why I should forgive without limit. That it just doesn't seem like, it just doesn't seem even smart. Well, clearly Peter was kind of wondering the same thing when he got the response from Jesus of 70 times or 70 times 70. Jesus tells a story to answer that question. He says, once upon a time there was a king, and this king decides that he wants to sort of balance his books and settle his accounts, and so he calls various people to him who owe him money, and he's reconciling the accounts, and, and he calls a servant before him who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, a, a talent was originally a unit of weight, uh, a weight of metal, but when it was used of, of precious metals like gold or silver, it was a, also a monetary, like a currency unit as well, a talent. Now, a servant, a, a laborer, might hope to earn a single talent in their entire life of work. And this guy owes 10,000 of these. So, I mean, talk about some subprime lending without income verification. I don't know who was verifying this guy's income when they gave him 10,000 times what he would make in a lifetime. But he's racked up an enormous debt. 
New Testament scholar R.T. France explains it this way. He says, 10,000 is the largest numeral for which a Greek term exists, and the talent is the largest known amount of money. So when the two are combined, it has the effect of, like in English, our zillions. This guy owes zillions of dollars. And the point is that the servant owes more than he could ever hope to pay off. And so this king, he's, he's ready to cut his losses. And so he says, I'm just going to take you and your family and your kids and everyone else. I'm just going to sell you into slavery and get what little money I can back. And at this point, it says in the text, Jesus says, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. I mean, like he has any hope of doing that, but the king, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him all the debt. This is stunning. He erases it all. I mean, can you imagine in a moment your mortgage gone, all the student loan debt disappears, completely debt-free? Just like that. But on the way home, this servant who's been forgiven just massive amounts, unimaginable amounts, bumps into a fellow servant who owes him some money. He owes him like 20 weeks wages. Now, 20 weeks wages, that's not an insignificant amount. You think in our time, 20 weeks wages, that could be 15, 20, $25,000. It's a good chunk of money. And it's important not to miss that because Jesus isn't saying when you forgive someone that it, that it doesn't really hurt, that it doesn't cost you something. 20 weeks wages is a lot. It's a big debt. But it's one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he's been forgiven by the king. And the forgiven man, though, in spite of that, grabs this guy who owns him 20 weeks' wages, and he chokes him and yells at him. He says, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. And it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? But the forgiven servant refuses to forgive the debt, and he throws the man into prison instead. Well, it doesn't take long for the word of this incident to get back to the master. And when the master discovers what happens, he is enraged. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, Jesus says, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all of his debt. Which is never. This guy's done. And in case anybody misses the point, Jesus adds at the very end, in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me translate what Jesus is saying here. I mean, do I really have to forgive? Do you really have to forgive? No, of, of course you don't. Jesus gives a clear alternative to forgiveness here in this story. I mean, this is what Jesus says in the story here. He says, you can forgive or you can go to hell. 
not any more murky than that. That's what Jesus says. You see, our forgiveness is to be limitless because God's forgiveness of us is limitless. Our forgiveness is to be limitless because God's forgiveness of us is limitless. Uh, Which leads us to the third truth about forgiveness that Jesus gives here. Forgiveness confronts real sin. Forgiveness knows no limits. And, And third, forgiveness reveals your heart. Because to be clear here, Jesus isn't saying that we somehow earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. I mean, the whole point of forgiveness is that there's something really, truly wrong that we can't repay, that we can't fix. That's why we have to be forgiven. But Jesus' point is this, that God's forgiveness of us is so transformative that if we've truly experienced it, we cannot help but extend it to others. Forgiven people forgive. That's just what they do. Forgiven people forgive. And your ability or inability to forgive those who hurt you reveals whether or not you've really tasted forgiveness yourself. Because for Jim, Jesus simply has no category for a forgiven sinner who is unwilling to forgive. He has no category for it. Because our debt against God, and, and this is the point, is insurmountable. God made you. He's, he's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. And yet, every day, we spit in his face. We do our own thing. We ignore him. We run from him. We don't pay him any attention. We don't make much of him. We don't love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, imagine a child who continuously, consciously abuses, steals from, ignores, neglects, even tries to murder their parents, the ones who gave them life. That's how we relate to God as people made in his image who have rebelled against him. We can never pay that back, ever. And yet Jesus, in his death, he absorbs that debt. He takes it on himself. He receives all of the wrath that we justly deserve, and he takes it on himself, and he releases us from it. He forgives us. It disappears. And when someone sins against you, no matter what they've done, and again, I'm, in this moment, hear me clearly, no matter what they've done, and I'm not minimizing their crime or your pain, no matter how much it hurts, no one can ever wrong you more than you have wronged God. No one can ever offend you more than you've offended Him. No one can ever owe you more then you own him, owe him. And if you can't forgive, it's because you have not experienced fully the forgiveness that he offers to you. And you might be thinking this moment, Bill, how can you say that? You have no idea what I've been through. And you're right, I don't. And if, if, you, if you want to tell me, and you, I'll listen, I'll grieve with you, and believe me, as pastors, we want to help you. Because in a room this size, some of you have been through some really awful stuff. I don't know what you've been through. I don't. But you don't know what God has been through. Watching us destroy ourselves and each other defy him, 
and yet he still chases us with forgiveness. You see, forgiven people forgive. Forgiveness, it's the very heart of the Christian faith. It's the bright center of the gospel, the core of the good news. The, the reason that we gather here every single Sunday is to celebrate the good news of the forgiveness of sins, which is why a refusal to re- forgive reveals that, that we haven't understood how sinful we are, how much we are loved. But you see, as we begin to get glimpses of both of those realities, how massively sinful we are, and how overwhelmingly beyond imagination how loved we are. We're overwhelmed, and forgiveness begins to be something we can't help but extend to others. It is one of the reasons that we gather every week to to tell one another afresh, to sing to one another afresh the story of our great need of forgiveness and the story of God's great love and His provision of that forgiveness. Last week, we sang the simple words together, if you were here, the children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I wasn't expecting it, in the, but in the first service, we began singing those words, and as we got to the chorus, I just, I, my throat caught, I couldn't go on, I just, I, I, I wept. The simple truth that Jesus loves you, and he's made possible forgiveness. It hit me afresh again how deeply sinful I am how unimaginably loved I am in the gospel. So we have no choice. When we've been loved and forgiven, we must forgive, which means we better get on with it. And so how do we go about that? I think we need to ask three questions this morning to help us along that process. Uh, First, we need to ask the question, has Jesus forgiven me? Has Jesus forgiven you? And don't assume that he has. I mean, just because you you come to church week in, week out, just because you you come with your family or with a friend, don't just assume that Jesus has forgiven you. Because if you find it impossible to forgive, and if bitterness lives in your life and festers, it could be that part of the reason for that is that you've never really been forgiven. Have you come to him? Have you confessed your sin to him? Have you, have you placed your trust in him and known his forgiveness? It starts there with Jesus' forgiveness of us. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, first of all, we're so glad. I'm so glad that you're here. But Jesus, in this moment, he's speaking primarily to his followers. Um, he says, this is how it works. If, if in my community you don't forgive, you, you're just demonstrating that you haven't really understood. But if you want help letting go of your anger in life, if you're longing to see healing in our world, then you have to start with Jesus' forgiveness of you. No one gives us the motivation and the ability to forgive like Jesus. Second question, and I'm sure it's probably already been on your mind throughout this. It's who must you forgive? And whose forgiveness do you need? Whose forgiveness do you need to ask for? Uh, Picture them. Whose forgiveness do you need? And who do you need to forgive? I guess for some of you, it's probably the person who's sitting right next to you. A spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. Because it's true that the people who are closest to us are typically the ones that we have the most capacity to hurt. 
and your marriage, your family, your friendships, they're, they're going to implode without the regular practice of forgiveness. And for some of you, it's been months or maybe even years, and there's a layers upon layers that have been built up. Stuff that just hasn't been dealt with, hasn't been forgiven. Maybe it's a parent, someone you're no longer friends with, your ex, a coworker. Forgiven people forgive. And then finally, what will you do about it? I encourage you, even now in this moment, on your phone or with your paper, just begin to make a plan. What's the next step? What's the next physical action in the real world that you need to take? Is it a phone call? Is it an email? Is it a text? Whatever it is, the step can't be nothing. The next step might be counseling. Maybe you're saying, I'm not in any place yet whatsoever that I can even talk to this person who's hurt me. Maybe the next step is to go with a counselor because for you the healing may take a, a lifetime. But again, whatever that next step is, it, step is, it can't be nothing. What will it look like for you to begin to take that process and begin to receive and offer forgiveness? See, forgiveness really, at the end of the day, forgiveness is a promise. Um, and there's a great organization called Peacemakers, and it, and it frames out some of the, the promises that forgiveness makes. Uh, it frames them out like this. First promise that forgiveness makes is that I won't dwell on this incident anymore. This is really important, the, the distinction here. I won't dwell on this incident anymore. Sometimes we say, and this is kind of a cliche in our culture, to for, forgive and forget, right? We, we hear that. But we can't just systematically choose to erase memories, especially painful ones. Those are some of the most vivid ones. I mean, think about Kevin Seth 25 years ago, eight, nine-year-olds. I remember those moments. So you're, you're not going to forget, but you refuse to dwell on them anymore. You refuse to actively call those things to mind over and over again. Forgiveness is promises I won't dwell on this incident anymore. Forgiveness also promises I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. So again, it, again, using it against you is a really key distinction there. It's not like it's just over and done with, that we won't ever have to deal with the implications of what's happened ever again in life. But I'm not going to bring it up to use it against you, to convict you, to hurt you. Often you have to keep forgiving the same wrong over and over again because the pain persists, but you refuse to empower that. And then third... Forgiveness promises, I will not allow this incident to stand between us and hinder our relationship. You refuse to let it define the relationship. It's not going to be easy. Of course, it, it never is easy. Forgiveness feels like a death. And it, and it is in a way, right? You're, you're giving up in forgiveness. You're giving up the right to hurt the other person the way that they've hurt you. But if God can forgive me, there's no one ultimately that I can't, that I shouldn't forgive. Because that's what forgiven people do. So yes, forgiveness feels like death. For you to forgive, for me to forgive, is the, I mean, there's nothing more painful if we've really been hurt. And it can cost us everything. Forgiveness feels like death, but for God to forgive, it actually required his death. Forgiveness is never free. And for those of you who have truly been deeply hurt, you know that. 
You know that. Author and speaker Brené Brown, who's done some great work on shame, she writes, there is no forgiveness without blood on the floor. There's no forgiveness without blood on the floor. It's true for us. And it was true for Jesus. He paid the cost that we could live forgiven and forgiving. And just imagine if we live this out, truly forgiving one another from our heart. Imagine a community of people without divorce, without bitterness, without judgment, without revenge, without racism. To be a Christian, C.S. Lewis writes, means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Lewis continues, this is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it, Lewis asks. And he says, only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lewis says, we are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. I don't know what you've been through, but Jesus does. And even Jesus, who would be betrayed by a close friend, offers Judas the meal of forgiveness, the bread and the wine the body, and the blood. It's why we celebrate communion together each week as a church family. A meal that at its heart is the promise of forgiveness. And so this week as we celebrate communion, let me just share a couple things with you. First of all, we always offer prayer during communion. So maybe this morning um, you say, I, Bill, I know I should forgive someone. I'm just not in a place where I can do that yet. We'd love to pray with you about that or anything else that's going on in your life that you need prayer for. Um, so there'll be some people available to pray with you um, at the sound booth in the back by the sign that says prayer. Also, if you're new here, let me just explain how we celebrate communion as a church family. There's uh, four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the back and two in the front. Um, this communion station in the back here is gluten-free. Uh, communion elements available. If you need those, you can make your way to that station. And when you come... Just gather in groups of four or five around the table. Part of the reason we do that, celebrate in groups, is to sort of tangibly, visibly express the community that forgiveness inevitably creates, that the gospel creates. That we're reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to one another. Forgiven people forgive. If you haven't embraced Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. If you have embraced Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, come and celebrate communion with us. You don't have to be a formal member of the church. But if you're just here uh, as someone checking it out, maybe you came with a friend or you came with your parents and you're not sure you buy all this stuff, or maybe you thought you believed it at one point, but you've kind of walked away, um, you don't feel like you have to come and partake in this meal. I don't want you to say something of yourself in receiving that, that that isn't true or that you wouldn't confess yourself to be true. 
But also maybe this morning you, you came in and, and you've kind of walked away or maybe you've never really believed this, but somehow in the course of the singing, the music, the preaching, you, you've just felt like this is true for me. And maybe you come for the first time this morning as a, a way of expressing that you receiving Christ's forgiveness, that you want to become a forgiven person in him who's able to extend that same kind of self-sacrificial forgiveness to others. Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. In the same way, when he had given thanks, he also took a cup and he gave it to them and said, drink of it all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus calls us to do this in remembrance of him, remembrance of the good news offered in the gospel that all sin in Jesus can be forgiven. So when you're ready, come and receive, taste and touch the good news of the gospel.